brothers and sisters Starting today Get yourself a song and you'll get along You'll chase all your worries away Drop everything, let that harmony ring Up to heaven and sing, sing you sinners The winner is Anna Magnani in the Rose Tattoo Hello and welcome to this episode of Categorically Oscars I'm Chris And I'm Kyle And this week we are returning to one of our most popular categories Um at least based on the engagement we've been getting on social media and the number of questions for this episode. Um, And you chose this category and year. Um, You chose um, Best Over-Actress 1955. Um, And what did, uh, why did you decide to go with this year and this this group? Um, Well, everyone loves a bit of Best Actress. Um, We we just get so much... um so many comments and things when we when we do that so it's always a popular one it's my personal favorite category oscar category um mainly because of the types of films that tend to get nominated in best actress is often a bit more interesting um you know there are a few outliers um in certain years where none of them match up to best picture so um on that basis it's my favorite category and I think there's a very interesting roles for these five women we're going to talk about today uh, in this year. And I did not know, which Matthew Stewart uh, drew our attention to on Twitter, that these five have the highest combined percentage of screen time for any Oscars acting category ever. So that's kind of amazing. Um, it's quite the discovery. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, I feel like that kind of speaks to why I chose the category in the first place subconsciously because these are very big roles for these actresses. Yeah, yeah, Matthew um Matthew Stewart gave us those stats and the winner um Anna Magnani has still has the lowest percentage of any of them and she's still on screen for 70% of the film, which is um pretty outstanding. And yeah, considering we've uh, we get the especially in Best Actors, I think we sometimes get shorter performances compared to Best Lead Actor. Um, yeah. So it's in it's really cool to see this category with such uh, these performances clearly dominating the film as you know as they obviously should because they're all the protagonists. There's a nominees this year. Um, it's quite a bunch, basically uh, an all-star lineup of. 50s cinema um we got susan hayward in i'll cry tomorrow katherine hepburn in summertime jennifer jones uh, love is a many splendored thing eleanor parker interrupted melody and the winner uh anna magnani the rose tattoo and i guess we just uh jump right into susan hayward yeah um, they've just announced the pubs are reopening in England. I'm sure Susan Hayward would have been pleased, um, given mm-hmm. her filmography. Um, yeah, uh, Lillian Roth definitely would approve. <laughs> this is your first time watching this, right? Yep. Yeah, this was my um, my first time. It was a. 
I, I mean, I had no idea what to expect um, going into it. I mean, I, I did have an idea because I've seen Susan Hayward in other roles and I know that she likes to go passionate. Um, and she certainly does here. She has a lot of uh, scenes that allow her to go kind of the full range of the um, woman in emotional distress, extreme pain uh, that she did so well and that eventually won her the Oscar uh, a few years after this. Yeah, I watching it again, I'd forgotten how harrowing it was um, in certain ways with the, the the child abuse really at the beginning with the mother, um, the way she's treating the girl is just terrible. It's like a darker version of uh, the Gypsy Rose Lee, um, mm-hmm. you know, pushy mother dynamic. And then eventually what happens with the controlling husband and the domestic violence, I found that really disturbing. And I think, like, for, for 1955, the script really takes risks and, and pushes boundaries with uh, with what it's discussing. And I think it addresses issues many filmmakers wouldn't bother to confront quite this openly and boldly. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I kind of really liked the film and... I really liked Susan Hayward in it, um, which is strange because I'm not a huge fan of Susan Hayward overall. Um, but I think this is the role that she was born to play. Yeah. And I mean, as you mentioned, Lillian Roth held out for her, right? She turned down more money uh, yeah. to make sure that Susan Hayward played her. Um, and yeah, it is a bold movie uh, in the sense of the issues that it addresses. Um it still had to tone down some of what was in the book that had only come out the year before, so they really got this out fast. Um, But yeah, the childhood phase of the book includes some even more uncomfortable stuff, including uh, some sexual abuse um, and things like that, which obviously I don't think they could have gotten away with in the movie at the time. And they had to kind of trim it to just the overbearing stage mother um which i i think joe van fleet does a fantastic job um in that i'm kind of surprised that she was left out of the supporting actress category for this one but of course she won this year for east of eden which i i have not seen so i don't know which performance is better Uh, i think she's better in 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 this but um this had to have helped her uh win the oscar for east of eden you know she must have been um, a big presence in 1955. Yeah. But she's great. She's really, I think especially once she realizes Lillian's ill, um, you know, it, there's quite a lot of emotion there and it, the, the performance kind of becomes a bit more than it was. It was a bit one dimensional and then it kind of, it's brought out of her a bit more. Um, but I think like I never had any inclination to be an actor at all. And I've never been like drama classes or anything like that. Um, but I think if you if you speak to people and you know you see sometimes um, clips of actors doing improv and you know pretend you're battling a blizzard or pretend you're riding a unicycle, like you know that kind of thing. But I think if you if you ask anybody to pretend you're drunk. Just watch Susan Hayward. That is all you need. It's This is how you do it. I think physically, 
in the act of being drunk, um, it's absolutely brilliant. And it's not just when she's sloshed, it's when she's nursing a hangover or suffering from the withdrawal, the degrees of drunkenness, tipsy, just woken up mm-hmm. drunk, um, trying to hold a conversation. I just think she completely commits to it. I think this is a masterclass of how to act drunk. Yeah, I agree. And I think that she gets what a lot of um, drunk performances don't, which is the physical illness aspect of drunkenness and, as you say, all the different stages of being drunk and the hangover. A lot of people get like the outward manifestations, but this performance, you can really tell how sick or um, ill Lillian is through Susan Hayward's performance. Um, and I think that that's a, yeah, definitely a, a something that other actors could take note of. It's a, it's very realistic um, portrayal of alcoholism um, for the time, I think even... Uh, one of the best I've seen in a dramatic, uh, a dramatic film, at least. I haven't seen The Lost Weekend in forever, but I remember that also being a very realistic and harrowing uh, portrayal of alcoholism. Yeah, yeah, me too. From memory, um, yeah, I agree. The the physic the physicality of the performance. It's a very muscular performance. I think she mm. used. She really does use her body and her body language in a really effective way. Um, I love like the scene where she finally goes to air and asks for help. Um, the way she moves is almost like she's kind of itchy inside, and, um, and she's like clasping her hands together to stop them shaking. Um, it's it's a very physical performance, not subtle in any way, shape, or form. Um, nope. I I don't usually go for the more um, the performance that seems to be overacting sometimes, um, but I find myself drawn to this one. Hmm. I mean, I'd, this was the first one I watched for the episode. I I mean, it wasn't the first time I'd seen all of these, but this was the first one I watched in this cycle, and the overacting kind of in the emotional scenes kind of turned me off a bit to it. But then after watching the rest of them and they all kind of, when they have to be emotional, they all go a little bit overboard. So Mm. I think it kind of softened it in retrospect for me um, and made me look a little more kindly on some of the more histrionic moments in this performance. Yeah. You do kind of think, how are you going to downplay alcohol dependency? You know, it is, Mm -hmm. It does carry a lot of, like, it pretty much destroys the nervous system. So um, it is going to have to be big. Um, But, I mean, I think one thing about Susan Hayward I didn't like in other films is that she does tend to play big even when the character doesn't need to be played big. Um, And I think I Want to Live is maybe an example of that a little bit. I think that's overacting. Um, but for me, it's it's quite appropriate in, in this context, in this film. Um, but what do you think about the fact she always, like, she played, like, drunk people? I think three of her, her major roles were kind of drunk women. Is that just... Yeah. 
I guess maybe she just got typecast um, mm, yeah. and that kind of thing, you know, and maybe that's why Lillian Roth said it has to be Susan Hayward. You know, she's the she's the woman who plays drunks. The go to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we don't know how she felt about that, but it it got her a lot of great high profile roles. So she probably just rolled with it, you know. I did find it funny when um, the, the film is like sort of saying alcohol is really terrible. Um, and then when Susan Hayward goes to Lily and goes to visit her boyfriend, David, in the hospital, and he's like chugging on this cigarette in the hospital bed. <laughs> <laughs> and it's such double standards, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Hollywood wasn't ready to confront more than one public health crisis at one time so they they had to do alcoholism one at a time <laughs> and there's another um another example of a character dying of whatever disease you know it's never really addressed he just gets sick and and dies and we don't get much uh we don't get really much explanation of that yeah yeah strange but I definitely think this is better than something like Days of Wine and Roses, I think is so overbearing. Um, mm-hmm. So this definitely feels like an honest portrayal of alcoholism that can maybe only come from somebody that's gone through it, you know? Yeah. I, I have to say, I mean, it, uh, it's pretty brave of the real Lillian Roth to write this book and then push so hard for it to be made into a film in order to do exactly that, kind of bring to light alcoholism and show its kind of devastating impact on people and also kind of remove the stigma from it a little or try to by showing that they're just sick people. They're not, you know, they shouldn't be shunned. They shouldn't be ignored. They need help. And so it's a kind of important film, I think, in that in that sense. Yeah, I agree. Should we move on to Miss Hepburn? Okay, sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, no, nothing against her, but I mean, summertime, I have to say, I love David Lean. I love Catherine Hepburn. This didn't do it for me. Um, and I think it's because it's, I've seen too many of these kind of travelogue Italian films from this era. Um yeah where the filmmakers were like, you know, we need a holiday. Italy's popular right now. Let's make a movie in Venice. You know, we've kind of, we've done enough with Rome. Uh, We did Roman Holiday and uh, all the rest of them. Three Three coins. coins. Goddamn (laughs) fountain. Yeah. Um, How about Venice? And like the movie could be half as long if they just split half of it and made it a movie and half of it as a um, tourist real to show you know to put to uh, advertise package tours and then i think it would be fine if those two things were separated but merge the two and it got kind of tiresome uh for me but i mean it's that that's an interesting way of looking at it i really like the film actually but the way if this is supposed to be you know got an element of tourism to it an element of promotional uh value for venice the film does kind of say that 
eventually you're going to get sick of the place because <laughs> she, mm-hmm. she it does it's not all it's built up to be in her, in her mind um and like i miss venice i really love venice i've been uh, a couple of times to the festival but when you watch this film you realize it's completely not changed since 1955 the only thing maybe the taxis are a bit more modern but <laughs> apart from that it's exactly the same and obviously it's sunk a bit since then um yeah but yeah but like by by design right i mean they know they've got a good thing going um and they don't yeah. want to spoil anything um but yeah the i I liked the film overall, but yeah, just the kind of um, beautiful exotic city that in the 50s uh, most theater goers might not ever get to. I mean, this was, I, I guess the boom and the package holiday tour was still to come. Like the 60s is when that really blew up. I think the 50s, it was still kind of smaller. Yeah. Um, but this was kind of like, the same feeling I got when I watched uh, King Solomon's Mines or Trader Horn or some of those other awful movies um, that are just like, hey, you'll never see this in real life, so buy a ticket and, and see it on the big screen. Um, not This movie's much better than those. I don't want to, you know, absolutely compare them, but I got the same kind of sense that this is why this movie existed to give the cast and crew a Venetian holiday and to advertise the city a little bit. Um, but of course, as you say, they uh, they do say that the shine comes off the apple eventually, but maybe that's only if you get involved with a married man. <laughs> I think um, this obviously appealed to Hepburn. Like she, I think she put up a couple of friends in an apartment there and they had a whale of a time. Um, I bet. And it, it, it does make you wonder, like, with the African Queen and obviously Hepburn was very much into travelling as a person, whether she started picking projects based on where it would take her in the world. Um, mm-hmm. But but I know, like, David Lean was obviously a big part of why she took on this role. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, I just liked it as a character study. I think Rosano Brassi is not very appealing, honestly, um, as a romantic lead. And no. it's all, I mean, I almost left the film wondering whether he is actually a con artist. <laughs> Does he care for her at all, to be honest? Um, I'm not really sure about that either. I mean, um, one of the things that kind of struck me about the movie was that it seemed to expect us to think that this was real and a tragic love story um that ended too soon because of whatever but i kind of got the sense that these two were gonna forget about each other about a week after the train left yeah like he's gonna go back to his wife or pick up somebody else at that picturesque cafe that attracts american tourists she's gonna go home to akron and and be an Akron, um, and live her life. Uh, I really didn't get the sense that this was any more than a, a little fling. Yeah, and it, it's despite what the characters seem to think. I don't know. I mean, for me, it, it does seem to be. A, this needs to happen for Jane personally, and to me, it seems more about Jane's journey and her, um, 
confidence and you know her self worth yeah. and um, I think I mean I think there's little things in Hepburn's performance that are actually magic like I think when the woman whose house she's staying at goes out for dinner and um, she's just surveying the wonderful surroundings you know it's like her first or second night and you can see Hepburn mm-hmm. putting into the character like thinking is this enough is this fulfilling me is this what I wanted it to be and I think she really does yeah, express that perpetual search for something. And I'm not even sure it has to be a man. I'm not sure that's what's in her head. I think she's just searching for something that will kind of enable her to let go a bit and let go of her anxieties and live a bit more. Um, so in that way, I think it's a beautiful portrayal of, of a woman that's maybe got, you know, a lot of inhibitions. Um, but as a romance less successful really for me yeah well i mean it's a it's a movie so it has to be a man to fulfill her it couldn't be you know a beautiful gondola ride or anything like that (laughs) but yeah so some of the parts in the beginning where she's like wandering around venice um looking so sad i was just thinking why just enjoy yourself. You're alone in a beautiful city. Just that that's great. I remember being in Paris by myself and it was a, I had the time of my life. I didn't I wasn't like, "Oh, I wish I had someone to share this with." Yeah, just take it in. What's wrong with that? Yeah, it's it's important to be happy in your own company, I think. And I think maybe um Jane as a character is like largely fairly happy in her own company but when you maybe she got to the point in her life where she was looking for something more I don't know that's that's the impression I got but when they're at, yeah. when they're at the cafe I think it was sort of almost like a throwback to Alice Adams in a way um I almost feel like this could be Alice Adams grown up and where where Bratsy's looking at her and um, she's fidgety because she can feel his eyes on her, and it just remind like reminded me of the ball scene in Alice Adams where nobody wants to dance with her and she's getting more and more nervous. Um, so I thought that was kind of a a nice little. I don't, I'm not sure if that's intentional, but it just did kind of remind me of um, the way Hepburn played Alice Adams. There's maybe an element of that to the way she plays Jane in this. Yeah, I'm I'm sure she was drawing on those same kind of uh, feelings. And the, I yeah, those two scenes do share a lot of similarities in kind of what's going through your head or the character's head. Yeah. What's with David Lean and train stations? I don't know. Maybe he was a train spotter uh, as a hobby and he just loved to set scenes in uh exotic train stations so he could get as many shots of them as he could but he did like them yeah but that's i mean that's another thing it um it kind of i kind of was forced to compare this unfavorably with brief encounter mm. um due to a lot of similarities and the trains um and it just doesn't hold up as well i think as a temporary tragic uh love affair cut short by circumstances 
um, I think Brief Encounter is his masterpiece, and this doesn't hit the same notes or the themes as well. So that that also kind of made this movie suffer in in my estimation. Yeah, and it feels a little tackier, even though he's um, supposedly separated. Like Brief Encounter actually puts us in the perspective of two people committing infidelity, which is, you know, quite bold, um, again, for that time. But uh, this, it it's, you know, less of an issue, and yet it still feels even tackier. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. But I, I really like the film overall. I, th- I think it just has some issues. It was enjoyable. Um, and yeah, her, her performance uh, raised it up a little bit. I think elevated it above its material and its travelogue aspect. Yeah. Shall we talk about love is a many splendored uh, in the grass thing? <laughs> many splendored. What does that even mean? I don't know. Um, I have no idea. But this is another uh, classic Hollywood renaming thing because the book is just a many splendored thing. And I don't know. I I think the producers were looking at it and said, but wait, what is the many splendored thing? We better put it in the title so that everybody knows that it's love is this inexplicable many splendored thing yeah i don't know what the title means at all i wonder if it's because the the song was written and then they said let's change it to the name of the song i don't know um (laughs) maybe maybe but this came from han su yin's book again a book about herself um like i'll cry tomorrow um slightly different from i'll cry tomorrow uh but th- yeah. this was um, like an autobiographic retelling of, of her romance with an Englishman. Was an Englishman in real life, not William Holden. Um, mm. And it's difficult not to start with the fact that they've decided to cast Jennifer Jones. Admittedly, I don't, I mean, w- which Chinese actresses of, of the time would they have cast in this? I'm not sure, but. They they have decided to cast Jennifer Jones, and it it's a decision that's not held up well. No, um, yeah. When you're talking about white actresses, I don't think you can get much whiter than Jennifer Jones. Um, and yeah, maybe if they had managed to find a Chinese actress, or at least an actress of Chinese descent, um, maybe they wouldn't have had to have her character mention that she's Chinese so much. Yeah. Like, it seemed like at the beginning of the film, every other line she's saying, I'm Chinese, I'm Eurasian. Have I mentioned I'm Chinese? By the way, my Chinese side is telling me this. And (laughs) maybe it was for people who, they're worried about people coming into the cinema late and not getting that she's supposed to be Chinese. (laughs) So she just has to keep saying it. Um, That was annoying. Yeah, it's problematic um, to say the least. I do think, yeah. I do think the story creates some potential for interesting dilemmas, um, and it does mock um, the colonialist snobs, um, especially the British in this, um, which is an, an interesting decision for this time. Um, but then, in other ways, it almost feels like. 
a remnant of McCarthy-era Hollywood where you've got all this anti-communist sentiment for China and I just could not abide the scene where Han Su Yin lectures the Chinese doctor about the politics of his own country and it almost yeah. feels as if you've got if you've got a bit of white blood in you you've got more political sense that's kind of the message it's sending to me um yeah so on the one hand it's discussing a woman deemed racially inferior but then saying she was at least superior to the chinese so that really did undermine the whole thing for me yeah and i mean that's the classic um horrible racist approach that hollywood tended to take which is you know the white savior and in this case she has her half her european half kind of rises up and uh you know tells him no you're wrong this is how your my country should be it's my country again now i'm back to my chinese half <laughs> and i mean this is it made me think of trader horn again you know the uh the white woman in Africa who magically becomes the leader of her tribe because white. And that's the only reason. So um, I think, yeah, that was just kind of a trope of Hollywood. Should I say was? I don't know. That white people know best and they need to let other, you know, let other countries and other nationalities know the proper way to do things. So... Yeah, it it her being in this role kind of makes it hard to take anything of it seriously, any of the points that it tries to make seriously. Yeah. Hansi in also problematic as a character for me. Like I we've just been talking about Catherine Hepburn and I think it's interesting to compare a Jones with Hepburn because you know, in summertime, Hepburn's like searching for something. She's already fairly anxious. So that when she find, you know, finds love um, to her, I could believe she would act a bit erratically towards, you know, mm-hmm. the prospect of happiness. Whereas Han Su Yin is already supposed to be pretty, pretty together as a person. She's a doctor. She's, you know, a professional. She's, um, she seems sensible. So I, I just struggle to believe, you know, when she does fall in love with William Holden, it almost feels like she becomes a basket case and can't cope. And um, I don't think Jones does enough to make some of these later scenes of uncontrolled longing feel realistic, really. Um, I think particularly that the reaction to the phone call is very bad acting when she... Um, He tells her he stopped biting his fingernails, which is code for the wife will grant him the divorce. I just thought that was really mannered response and theatrical and didn't fit the character. No. Yeah, I I agree. She kind of becomes the... um, She goes from being this strong, self-possessed doctor to kind of a giggly damsel in distress. Um kind of stereotype and yeah the whole that reaction was awful and the they could have come up with a better line for that because it just sounds ridiculous um i've stopped biting my fingernails and she swoons i mean i know that it's code but it it's really a dumb line yeah 
um, they could have come up with something, an- another habit for him to show his nervousness or whatever that he could then kick and have that be the code. Um, yeah. Ridiculous. Um, I feel like we need to say something positive. I think this, I think the film looks wonderful. Like I think some of the shots are really, really good. Um, cinematography is great in this. Yeah. Um, and the overall, the score is not bad. I'm not a huge fan of the song. This, the theme song. No. Um, but overall the scoring is pretty good and yeah, it, it looks fantastic. Um, and also it has, um, like 1955, I could save this for wider observations, but this was William Holden's like semi nude heyday, right? You had this film <laughs> and you had Picnic where he's mostly shirtless yeah. and or pantsless. I liked the when they swim to her friend's house um, and they give them robes. Hers is a full length, you know, bathrobe and his like ends a couple inches below the naughty bits. <laughs> um, just to, you know, show off those gams that he had. Uh, I thought that was hilarious. Um, and the like the shots of them on the beach are clearly favoring his body more than hers. Um, yeah, I, th- I thought that was interesting. And then, of course, at the end of that beach scene, they have the moment where they light each other. He lights her cigarette using his, um, you know, very blatant code there. I'm surprised they didn't follow it up with like a train going into a tunnel or something just to really <laughs> drive the point home. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I, I did. I did enjoy the, especially watching these movies for the first time after seeing William Holden pretty much only in the later part of his career and like Network and The Wild Bunch. Uh, seeing him as a sex symbol was pretty shocking. Yeah, he's a, he was a hunk of a man. He really was, um, and this film really wants to show that off. Um, yeah, and it's I do ad- admire the fact that the film is so unabashedly romantic. And um, hmm. I think the two leads have some chemistry. I mean, it's not exactly sizzling, but there's some there. Um, Made all the more in, uh, incredible by the fact that they were not friends, to say the least, <laughs> when the cameras weren't rolling. <laughs> I mean, I'm I was tempted to give I was tempted to give Jennifer Jones the number one spot just because she had to both act like a Chinese British woman and like she enjoyed William Holden's company. Uh, and at least the latter she manages to express um, despite all of her, all of her nature. She was ever the professional Jennifer Jones. Um, but I, except for the the garlic thing, except for the garlic. Um, <laughs> but I think like, it does seem as if Jennifer Jones was a difficult woman. I know she was, um, also not happy on Beat the Devil um, with John Houston and uh, she seems to have fallen out with a few people. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But I think like we're talking about five films today and I think this film does lack substance compared to the rest of it. It does feel like a very flimsy um, premise uh, to base a film on in the first place. Um, yeah, yeah. 
so it was certainly my least favorite film of the five. Yeah, I would say so too. Well, then uh, let's leave it behind and move on to uh, another singing performance. Uh, Eleanor Parker in Interrupted Melody. I liked this movie. Um, I wasn't expecting to at the beginning. Um, I was a little put off by the fact that her entire family speaks with different accents and none of them are Australian. Roger Moore's uh, Australian accent not quite honed in 1955. <laughs> no. Was, was he even trying? Because it seemed like later in the movie he just gave up and started talking like himself. It's like half Cockney, half Australian. That's That's how it came across to me, but... Mm-hmm. But yeah, Eleanor Parker doesn't even try. Cecil Calloway, barely. I don't. I don't remember any attempt at an accent there. But I mean, I, I don't expect everybody to nail an accent, but I do expect members of a family that grow up together on a farm to have the same accent, or pretty much. Um, so that put me off right away. But fortunately, we got away from the family, and uh, the the movie improved from there. Well, it does. I mean, part of me thinks it's wise that Eleanor Parker doesn't attempt an accent. But then we yeah. we did the Sundowners and Deborah Kerr did it great five years after this. Yeah. So, you know, if if you if you make as much effort with that as, as you did learning the operas, maybe it would have worked. I don't know. But either do one or the other. At least it was consistent accent from her. That's true. And I mean, I did I did listen to a couple of recordings of Marjorie Lawrence. Um, and while she does have an Australian accent, it's definitely not super strong. Um, I think I mean, and she may have worked to kind of uh, neutralize it to appeal to an international audience, as I know, I think some people do do. Um, but so in that regard, it wasn't like Eleanor Parker sounded nothing like her. Yeah. by just speaking in her normal voice. So it, it was probably a wise decision. Uh, but you're right. I mean, I'm now I'm thinking of Deborah Kerr and thinking how amazing her accent game was. Exactly. Um, I mean, I liked the film too. I, I'm i not sure if Oscar bit was a term in 1955, but if it wasn't, <laughs> they probably should have coined it after Interrupted Melody. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because my word, this is an out-and-out Oscar vehicle for Eleanor Parker. This is baity as hell. Absolutely. Um, but I mean, usually with these films, um, which I guess started with The Star Is Born, you get the narrative where the man has his nose put out of joint. Um, speaking of uh, mm-hmm. Glenn Ford <laughs> in this. Um, is Glenn Ford? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think like it can work very well. Like uh, Coal Miner's Daughter comes to mind. Tommy Lee Jones in that. I think that works. Mm-hmm. Um, but with this, I it does get better. But at the beginning, Glenn Ford thinks you know she's too well established. She's too famous. He's just setting up his practice, and he'll only marry her once she quits singing. Like how terrible is that? Yeah. Very terrible. Yeah. I'm sorry, I don't care if you're a doctor. Doctors are, doctors are ten a penny. You know, people with voices mm-hmm. like hers aren't. So I really resented like his inflated level of himself and 
I kind of struggled to understand why she was attracted to him, really. Like, maybe if he was Brando, but he's hardly, like... I know. It's gone forward, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's ridiculous. And, I mean, it's wor- it was terrible that he insisted, but also terrible that she says, okay. Um, yeah, and that's even a line of dialogue, right? There's lots of doctors, and he shoots back, there are lots of singers, and that just devastates her when it should make her just say, okay, well, go find another one then who's willing to quit for you, mm. asshole. Um, <laughs> she couldn't say that in 1955, but... Uh, yeah, that was bad. Um, and the whole time their relationship just felt forced. Um, it's weird to... I mean, I don't know. This is, again, based on a real person and literally written this time by Marjorie Lawrence, or at least she got a writing credit. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how much of this is based on reality or maybe she was mad at her husband while she was writing it. Um, but yeah, he doesn't come across well. And of course, Glenn Ford himself insisted on getting top billing to make the movie. So, you know, maybe he was just right for this role in a lot of ways, but he didn't get the nomination. She got it. So, but it, that does, um, that's true. That does kind of make me think, oh, actually, we've got three really juicy biopic performances and um, the fictional character won. Um, so that's interesting <laughs> for this year. Maybe they all cancelled each other out. Um, but yeah. at the beginning, I was thinking, can you just get these opera scenes out the way? Like, I'm maybe it's because I'm not a fan of opera, but it seems like the film just rattles along you know, telling us she had every big role imaginable. You don't need to show us she did Carmen, Madam Butterfly, etc. You know, there's about half a dozen sequences. Um, yeah, that did get pretty grating. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's made worse by the fact that even though Eleanor Parker was singing in the when they made the movie, she still got dubbed. Um, and so that's like an added layer of uselessness to actually showing it because it's not even her singing so what is the point and yeah it could have just been a montage of posters you know uh i don't yeah i I agree i don't think it added anything to show us um a bunch of clips of maybe it's a treat for opera fans but yeah i'm also not a not a, a devotee of opera no for me i remember more of the film being the sickness um, than, than it actually is. I think it's at least, it's about an hour before she, she has that collapse scene um, yeah. in which I think she's brilliant the way she acts that scene, Parker. Um, yeah. And from then on, I think she's she's excellent. For really the last half an hour, I think she's top notch. This is really good. Yeah. No, I agree. When When she does, when the character gets sick, I think... The performance really hits a stride, and Eleanor Parker, um, yeah, goes really top-notch with this. Um, I guess I would have... It does kind of come out of nowhere, the illness. Um, I'm thinking kind of kind of like um, Pride of the Yankees slowly built towards Lou Gehrig's diagnosis and hinted at it with small things leading up to it. Yeah. 
some of them in the background, and then they kind of become more and more visible, and finally the diagnosis. With this one, it's just, I've got a headache, take some aspirin, collapse, polio. Uh, and it just kind of was a little too sudden, I think. And maybe if they'd cut some of the opera bits from the first half, they could have, you know, paced that out a little better. Um, because... Obviously, she's brilliant after the diagnosis, but how about showing us how she was coping with these, you know, inexplicable pains and aches um, and not knowing what it is? You know, that's an, also an important part of this story that I I think we kind of got to cheat it out of. But what did you think of the portrayal of disability overall? And because it does seem to happen to her when she's getting too big for her boots. It's almost, it does feel like a bit of a punishment for the character. Did you did you think that? A little bit, yeah. And also the maybe that was this also um I got that from the suddenness of it kind of um striking her down in her prime kind of thing. Yeah. Um and yeah, it kind of wanted us I think to if not completely sympathize with dr king at least kind of be a little on board with what he's telling her like look i'm a doctor i save lives and you're the woman you should Mm. uh be with me and her saying nope i'm going on tour and i'm gonna i'm gonna do my thing and then polio Mm. and now she's dependent on him um and he then becomes you know the doting sort of husband you know kind of tough love um, and it kind of vindicates his character, and the path she eventually takes is more or less through him, which was also kind of uncomfortable to watch, even though it's portrayed in a positive way. Yeah. But yeah, the disease definitely does have a kind of a vindictive element to it uh, in the script. I think also like it, it does sort of, it does sort of. Um come out on the side of him really and said well actually the medical profession is more important uh, than entertainment Mm -hmm. uh, which is not really what you want to be saying but this is from Lawrence's own hand right so she's yeah she thought this she signed it off on the story so she must have thought that it was a fair depiction I guess so yeah can I'm digressing a little bit but did you buy the trend the Cyril as the villain bit in the second half? Like he kind of disappeared after her diagnosis mm. and then he comes back and there's like this heavy scene between him and the doctor and there's heavy music playing and he's got his hat in his hand and like I don't expect a brotherly hug, but and I'm I wrote in my notes, so is he the villain? Like, is he the bad guy? What happened with Cyril? Well, he does seem to only exist in the story to walk in a scene and antagonize everybody and, like, say, you know, say to her, you should be doing the tour, you should be working as much as you can, work, work, work till you drop. I think that's why he was supposed to be the villain, but he's, it does feel like there should be more of him to, to build that up unless he's been cut out, um... But, yeah, but I mean, it's not it's not like they have a scene where he antagonizes her post um, post disease. He just disappears like the script mm. just writes him out. Um, 
So it's not like he, we see a scene where he says, well, you know, you can't sing anymore, so I'm going to go manage somebody who can or something actually villainous. Yeah. Um, he just doesn't have any scenes. So I don't think that's his fault. I think that's the, the writer's fault. Okay, should we talk about the winner? Yeah, oh, this is a in a in a era of big performances. I think Anna Magnani kind of uh, stands apart. This is quite a performance. She goes everywhere, like she goes from despair to elation and everywhere in between without warning. Yeah, it's um, Magnani was a muse for Tennessee Williams. He loved her. Um, wrote this play, The Rose Tattoo, for her specifically, um, even though I think Maure- Maureen Stapleton uh, ended up doing the role on, on Broadway um, yeah. because Magnani's in- didn't think her English would do it justice. Um, she didn't think it was good enough at that point. But yeah, But she did the movie after some convincing. And I really admire that Tennessee Williams stuck to his guns you know, said I want Magnani to do it even after Stapleton had done it on the stage. And because it's difficult to see who would be a better choice than Magnani. And I actually think the fact that her English is broken makes the performance better. It makes it more authentic. Yeah, um, and that was something I was wondering about um, with Maureen Stapleton. Like, did she play uh, Serafina as a Sicilian immigrant? Or, and did she attempt an accent, which probably wasn't very good? Mm. I think, yeah, it was definitely a wise decision. I mean, especially, you know, the character was written for for Magnani, so who else could it be, really? And I, yeah, definitely a good decision. Although I, I think that, you know, Eli Wallace was the original Alvaro. Yeah. Um, and that would that would have been an interesting casting in the movie well what is what is Burt Lancaster doing in some of this I did wonder like <laughs> I feel like I mean he's not terrible but it, it does feel a little it does feel like he's too old um, for the character and it also yeah. kind of felt like maybe obviously Lancaster hot stuff in, in 55 coming off the back of From Here to Eternity it feels like maybe the casting based on his popularity more than suitability for the role. Yeah. Although I I do kind of like to see Burt Lancaster at this kind of manic insanity mode. <laughs> like I love him as a, you know, as a film noir heavy and as, you know, and from here to eternity where he's just kind of dark and kind of terrifying. Mm. But I love to see him as the clown. Uh he just lets loose completely um and i this this is probably the movie that got him elmer gantry uh because kind of the similar over the top you know showing every tooth he's got every time he grins and laughs um so yeah i mean maybe he was a little old for the for the character but i i kind of love his performance in this um (laughs) it's over the top but you know why not yeah you've got like you you really don't know what's gonna happen in this movie from one one moment to the next. It's like Tennessee Williams was so clever. He he really had a knack of making characters both endearing and annoying, often at the same yeah. in the same breath. 
And um, mm-hmm. I think like there's such a slovenly edge to Magnani in this. She's she's erratic and she's unpredictable, like all of Tennessee Williams' women are. Um, yeah, but it's also subtly different from all those other other women. And I think like I suddenly got the character. I think when um, she has the scene with the sailor where she makes him swear. Um, Wakes him, him swear on the Bible or whatever it is um, that that he's going to be faithful to a daughter and treat her right. And um, Ben Cooper, who plays the sailor, gives a lovely little performance in this as well. And um, yeah, I think there's something quite effective about having these two parallel stories of, on the one hand, Magnani Serafina pining over her dead husband who's been unfaithful and um, She's wondering whether her life has been a lie in some ways, and then the other story of you know the the young love blossoming between her daughter and um, and the sailor Jack, and I kind of found that those parallel uh, stories running um, against each other quite moving, and I think that gr- eventually kind of grounds Serafina a little bit because occasionally it feels as if she could go off the deep end. But it, it seems like this is the one thing preventing her from doing it because she sees that, you know, love in a different way, um, not about betrayal, about hope. Yeah, and, and that kind of gives her the uh, strength or the at least the motivation to give Alvaro a shot in the end, you know, um, even though he's a goofball, you know, let's... Let's see where it goes. Why not? Um, and the um, the Sheik of Araby on the piano is kind of this film's equivalent of the lighting the cigarettes on each other. <laughs> I mean, he does um, he does leer at her daughter, and there was there was some element of of um, attraction there. But I guess she's going to be leaving home and getting married to the sailor, so maybe. Maybe that's yeah. not an issue. And also, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, that was a kind of creepy moment, but he was pretty drunk yeah. as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I I kind of bought his explanation that he thought it was um, Serafina on the sofa because, you know, he was, yeah, he was pretty drunk. And yeah, he's a, he's kind of an idiot. So, sure. It was his Lillian Roth moment right there. Exactly. <laughs> now, I have, um, I thought, that Burt Lancaster also played her husband um, in the op- like in the bed because we never really see his face and I th- um, and I thought that would be an interesting thing I guess I just assumed it but it turns out it's, I looked on IMDb and I actually forget the actor's name but it's not Burt Lancaster um, it should have been well we never yeah we never see his face so really it could the cameraman may as well have got up there, to be honest. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I knew, I mean, I knew from this first scene in bed that we're, we're never going to see his face because if you don't show him in the, that scene, you know, I kind of got that that wasn't the point and we were never going to see him. Um, but yeah. I think in terms of Magnani, it, it does go back to what I was saying about Hayward, like, it's a lot about the posture and the body language in this, but it is a situation where 
like Patton almost, a situation where you can't really doubt the character. She inhabits the character and becomes it so fully that I kind of ceased to see the acting. Um, that was how great it was. Oh, yeah, same. I I mean, I barely saw this as a performance. It seemed more that I was just watching Serafina uh, go about her day and going through all these things. It's a, Yeah, that's a... It's a fantastic embodiment of a character, and you can see, you can definitely see the quality of the writing that Tennessee Williams gave her as an actress. Like this is, this is for you, and yeah, I can't imagine anybody else in the role. Yeah, and she makes such great choices at times. I think she doesn't make the character too likable. Like Seraphine is pretty awful to the daughter. It has to be said um, mm-hmm. at times. Mm-hmm. Marissa Pavan, also good in this, I would say. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. She's not in it much for the nomination, but pretty pretty good, I would say. Um, but I think you can kind of sense some backstory with Serafina and, you know, there's like hints in Magnani's performance. The character's quite prudish and conservative sometimes, where you wouldn't expect it to be. Um so, you know, there's maybe a hint that might be a strict upbringing. She might have had all, all this stuff in the background. Um, it I really enjoyed this because it's not re- regarded as um, A-tier, uh, Tennessee Williams. But, I mean, I might prefer this to Suddenly Last Summer, to be honest. Hmm. I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen that one, um, but I do prefer this to Baby Doll. Um I like Baby Doll a lot, uh, but I would I would rank this one above that. Any more on Magnani? Mm, no, except to apologize for pronouncing her name incorrectly. Uh, pretty much my whole life, always saying Magnani. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. I should have should have known her being Italian. That wasn't correct. But, but I love her as an actress. I've seen a lot of her uh, Italian work, and it's a shame she didn't do more. Uh, English language stuff because I think especially writing off of this Oscar win she could have been huge um, I have to admit I've not I've not seen um, Rome Open City um, but mm. and I haven't seen her other Tennessee Williams um, film The Fugitive Kind have you seen that? Uh, I've not no because I've heard uh, less good things about that one in terms of a film, not in mm-hmm. terms of her, but yeah. All right. Um, then I guess we can get on to our listener questions. And, you know, as I, as I said at the outset, um, we got a lot today, um, as we always do for this category. Uh, some of these questions could be spun off into entire episodes in their own right. Um, and I'm going to say you know, before we get into it, that I will not have much to say on a lot of these because I haven't seen the other films that a lot of these questions, um, a lot of these questions reference. So just putting that out there. Um, all right. So let's see, uh, Jean Valentine, I'm sorry, uh, Mirko Salvini asks, this was the third and last nomination for Parker. Which one of her not-nominated performances for you was worthy of attention by the Academy? Uh, 
I haven't seen loads of, of Parker's filmography, but I mean, I'd probably go for The Sound of Music in supporting. Um, yeah, we didn't actually mention this when we did Best Director 65, but she looks incredible in that movie. Like, yeah. like other level has anyone ever looked better? So she she really did age gracefully, my God. Um, but I think she's good in Three Secrets from 1950, which is a sort of a triple lead situation. Um, but she's mm-hmm. overshadowed by Patricia Neal in particular. Yeah. Um, and 1950 was already a very strong lineup for Best Actress. Um, yeah. So I would go with I would go with the Sound of Music. I, she's certainly better than um, Shelley Winters was in a <sighs> in her Oscar winning role. Yeah. Uh, it always comes back to hating on Shelley Winters, doesn't it? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's, it's all right. It's all right. Um, I, w- I was going to say that another one from this year, actually, The Man with the Golden Arm, she played uh, Zosh opposite Sinatra in that movie. Um, and I don't think I would I don't think I would replace this nomination with that one. But I definitely think that that one could have been um, a possibility for an Oscar nomination. That's a great film and sort of like a heroine version of I'll Cry Tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. And of course Sinatra got the uh, best actor nomination for that one so it was it was on their minds. Yeah. Okay. Um another um another question about nominations that could have been. Uh Zeta Short asks sadly Jennifer Jones's run as an Academy favorite ended with her nomination for Love is a Many Splendid Thing. If you were forced to swap out Jones's nomination for this film in favor of one of her other unnominated performances, which one would you choose? Well, I'm a huge fan of Clooney Brown um, from 1946, mm-hmm. but she was nominated in 1946 for <laughs> Jewel and the Sun. So yeah. I would kind of replace it with that one. Um but if, I mean, otherwise it's going to have to be Towering Inferno because, again, I, she didn't do many films, Jennifer Jones, um, that mm-hmm. many 20, 25 films or something. So my answer is really Clooney Brown. She should have been nominated for that um, more than most of her actual nominations. But then she couldn't have been nominated for Jewel in the Sun either. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was going to say Towering Inferno as well, um, just because, you know, it had a stare and he got nominated. So it kind of had that supporting energy. Uh, and she did get the Golden Globe nomination for that one as well. So, yeah, probably that one. A memorable death as well, which um, yeah. sort of in the comic comic value of disaster films, really, the kind of death she... <laughs> Mm-hmm. she has in that one yep a fitting farewell uh for her career <laughs> um drew asks um do you think doris day in love me or leave me was sixth this year and i have not seen love me or leave me so i don't know oh it's really bad <laughs> it's really it's quite terrible actually um but I think yes, to be honest. Um, it uh, you know I think probably yes, she was given that Cagney got nominated, and Cagney's awful. 
really, really bad. Mm. I like Cagney, but he's he's really bad in this. Um, but mm. shall we talk about snubs now? Then, um, yeah, uh, we might as well because that would also um, lead us into another question. Can, can I? I'll, I'm going to ask this question, then we get into snubs. Um, okay. Because Ronaldo Sosa asked if Jane Wyman had been nominated for All That Heaven Allows, how would she rank among these nominees for you? Um, and we can also address this when we get to our ranking, but it's also a performance that was probably in the running that uh, that didn't get included. Yeah, absolutely. Um, she would rank fourth for me um, of these nominees and... Uh, I don't like all that heaven allows. Uh, this is just getting really negative. <laughs> um, I, I think it's like mm. what, like one of Cirque's quite bad films. Um, and there's some there's some really dodgy story beats that happen in, in the movie, and you can kind of see everything coming a mile away. Um, yeah. But I mean, I have a like ninth in my personal list below below uh, all but one of these. And below other people like Julie Harris in East of Eden and um, mm. Hideko mm. Takamine and Floating Clouds, other people like that. Yeah, I have not seen All That Heaven Allows. Um, I don't think I've seen any Douglas Sirk. Uh, honestly, I've seen, okay, I've seen part of Imitation of Life, but that's about it. Oh, my word. Um, <laughs> is that a good or a bad, oh, my word? <laughs> We're going to have to do um, Written on the Wind and, or something else. One, one time okay. <laughs> supporting actress uh, 56 up next um but in terms of snubs i always felt that betsy blair got shafted by being in supporting actress for marty instead of best actress because mm. uh, she is the female lead of the film and she does have an arc um i know that marty is the primary character of course mm. i mean it's he's his name's in the title and all but i i really thought that betsy blair should have been in uh should have been in the best actress category i think she's better than um, all, all of the best actress nominees it's my it's one of my favorite yeah. performances it's such a beautiful performance um I, but i have it in supporting but i agree it's it's borderline totally yeah um, another snub that I would say um, is uh, Simon Signore Sign- Sign- um, in uh, Lady Obeliques. Um, I think that she's fantastic in that and should have been should have been a contender for Best Actress this year. And Vera Cluso also brilliant in that too. Um, yep, yep. Uh, Jean Simmons. Uh, in Guys and Dolls, she won the the Comedy Globe, mm. um, so she might have been in consideration as well. I would, yeah, I would think so. What about Grace Kelly in To Catch a Thief? Um, was a big mm. hit that year, although she's not great in it, but she was she got nominated. Yeah, the fact that she just been that she just won uh, the year before yeah. must have. Uh... Must have helped. It would have helped her chances, I think. What about Marilyn in Seven Year Rich? Were Were they ever gonna go for Marilyn? I doubt it. Mm. Um, I I don't I don't think so. No. 
Okay, um, this is a big question from Andrew Carden. Where does Summertime rank for you among the Oscar-nominated Hepburn turns that you've seen? Well, I don't want to um, spoil too much in case, because we're going to be doing more Best Actress and Catherine Hepburn's going to come up a lot. Um, Yeah, yeah. but, But this would rank fifth for me. I haven't seen Woman of the Year. That's the only one I've not seen of hers. Um, mm. this would rank fifth and um, number one would be Long Day's Journey Into Night nice uh, I have seen half of her Ooh. I've seen yeah definitely behind on my Hepburn uh, filmography but having seen half of them I would probably also rank this fifth okay um uh, my favorite of hers so far that I've seen has been The Lion in Winter. Um, but I have not seen Long Day's Journey in Tonight. That's one of the ones uh, that I still need to uh, I still need to tick off. And I have not seen her final win in On Golden Pond. Wow. Though I, yeah. So got some, got some heavy hitters in the Hepburn filmography still to come. Yeah, and we sh- we should tease that we're going to be just talking about Lion in Winter uh, in the next month or so in an episode, um, although not in the Best Actress category. That's right. But as as they often do, um, all categories lead to Best Actress eventually. <laughs> um, Okay, what do we got next? We've got, okay, this is an absolutely huge question from Eowyn Daly. Um, What are your thoughts on how these nominated performances factor into the overall careers of the actors nominated? Also, if given the opportunity, what actress of today would you cast in each of these roles if the films were being remade today? Oh, and if you got a spare three hours... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah this this um maybe we'll do a bonus episode just on this question just for Eowyn well oh to, man I mean the, to answer the first the first part of the question I think you've got Jones and Parker these were their final nominations um and it does feel like both Jones and Parker once they reached 40 their kind of Hollywood careers were over and um Mm-hmm. Parker went to TV and, and Jones just kind of quit pretty much, um, apart from maybe three or four films she did past 1960. Um, so this is their last hurrah, really, for those actresses. For the others, it's a tiny part of Catherine Hepburn's epic legacy, really. Um, and for Hayward and Magnani, I think they're kind of two actresses that are obviously at the height of their popularity here and... Um, both would get another nomination um, and Hayward would win eventually. Um, and then they mm. too would, would kind of drift into the background as well. This sort of shelf life for actresses, unless you were sort of Catherine Hepburn or Betty Davis, was not so long. Yeah. And this is kind of um, a blip on Anna Magnani's uh, incredible career. Um winning the Oscar and doing an English language film for her was just kind of a, a project that she did um, after 
an incredible career in Italian cinema. So um, I think she has kind of the most interesting, this being, you know, a place in her overall career arc as kind of not that big a deal, Um, (laughs) which is interesting uh, to think about. the. I mean, the Academy, spoiler alert, I think they did the right thing giving her the award, but, Mm. you know. If I she hadn't won it, I, I don't think she would have been too heartbroken. Yeah. Um, now, the second part of the question, I am terrible at this kind of game, so I don't have uh, replacements for everybody. Um, what about you? What have you got? Well, I think a love is a many splendid thing would have to be Scarlett Johansson, right? Of course, I was actually <laughs> thinking, yeah, they sh- they need to get the whitest uh, actress they can, the modern day equivalent of Jennifer Jones. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, it's... I mean, th- th- it begs the question why they would ever want to remake this movie. Um, but I guess if they did, would they learn their lesson? I don't know. Well, it would be great for Zhang Ji um, or Zhao Tao, um, both great Chinese actresses of the moment, although Zhang Ji not been in much lately, so I might go for Zhao Tao in this. Good choice. Um, For Rose Tattoo, I thought of maybe Monica Bellucci. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. I think she's at the right she's at the right age and she's got that kind of intensity. Yeah. I think I did Google Italian actresses and had a look at them and I I sort of thought, well, Maybe I might kind of change the um, Italian angle and go with Penelope Cruz um, <laughs> and sort of tweak this the script a bit because I think Cruz Cruz has got real chops, but I don't I haven't really seen yeah. Monica Bellucci and, uh, much. But well, I I think Cruz is a good um, a good idea because you know the the fiery Italian and the fiery Spaniard have a lot in common. So I think it would translate well. Um, let's see. Uh, for um, what else? Uh, for summertime, I thought of Sally Hawkins. Okay. Um, because I think that she, especially, uh, I'm thinking of Shape of Water. She kind of has that lost soul. Yeah. Uh, chops, and I think she could do really well as a, you know kind of spinster for lack of a better word i don't like that word but um going abroad for the first time and expecting the moon and the stars and uh being disappointed and trying to find something you know in this in this once in a lifetime trip yeah it's interesting because you could have summertime and not have it with someone as old as Catherine hepburn was um i think it's sort of a universal story one of the best movies I've seen ever is um, The Green Ray um, from Eric Roma and a uh, French movie. And it's about this woman who goes on holiday on her own and she's anxious and it's amazing. But um, okay. but she's only a woman in her early 20s. So you could easily have it with someone like that. I was kind of going older and I was thinking maybe Leslie Manville, someone like that. Um, hmm. But... Sally Hawkins is a good one, yeah, because she's she's definitely got the vulnerability to her. Yeah, I think that's the key. Um, the other two I didn't come up with uh, any 
modern actresses. I was I was trying to think of ones that could sing, um, but or or do alcoholism, mm. but I, I couldn't really think of anybody that I would really want to replace. Uh, that I I think could kind of step up. I mean, I I wouldn't want to replace any of these except Jones, but I I, I don't know. I can't. I I couldn't think of anybody for those other two. Well, for I'll Cry Tomorrow, I was thinking maybe Chastain, Jessica Chastain, um, who I believe can sing a bit. I think she's, um, I think most actors can sing a bit. Um, But I was thinking Mm -hmm. more on the age and, um, you know, give this woman a decent dramatic role um, because she's she's brilliant when she's when she's on it. and then interrupted melody, I mean, going through the Australian angle, Margot Robbie, maybe. Um, yeah, I th- I thought of her. Um, uh, yeah, I wonder how she would do in this. Um, I've not heard. Has she ever sang? I don't know. See, that's the question. Otherwise, could you do Kylie, or is Kylie too old? Mm. <laughs> no, I think she. I think I don't know. I. Make the uh, make the character older if it helps. I don't know. Um, no, I think it'd be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the questions, guys. That was brilliant. Yeah, great questions. Um, and a couple people left comments uh, without asking questions. Gene Valentine said, "Thank you for reminding me just how wonderful Anna Magnani is." Uh, well, we hadn't done that yet, but I think we do in this episode. Um, her performance in this film, in particular, she gave her heart to every film she acted in. Lovely, I absolutely agree, uh, Jean. She does. And David simply says, "Catherine Hepburn," <laughs> and there's there's really no more to be said. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So yes, thank you, everybody. Uh, for the questions, and thank you again for uh, to Matthew Stewart for providing that uh, that great stat about the screen time average. Yeah. So, why did Anna Magnani win the Oscar, and do you think it was close? Um, absolutely not close. She won the NBR. Mm-hmm. She won New York Film Critics. She won the Golden Globe. Um, I can maybe see some sentiment for for Susan Hayward as kind of becoming overdue at this point, but it does feel like this is a a bit of a runaway winner situation. Film had a Best Picture nomination, so what do you think? Yeah, no, I I agree, um, and I think she won because her performance is just the most powerful, and in a in a lineup with some powerful stuff in there, I think she just brings an her energy is just completely different and her approach to acting, I think is just completely different and it's easy to see how voters were just kind of blown away by it. Yeah. So how do we, how do we rank these? Um, okay. Um, do you want to go first with the ranking? Sure. Um, I've got, uh, at number five, Jennifer Jones. Um, just, I like her, but there's just too much wrong with, <laughs> this movie and this performance i'm sorry um number four i've got katherine hepburn number three uh susan hayward number two eleanor parker and number one uh miss magnani okay um at five i have jennifer jones sorry jennifer um not the nomination of yours that i like particularly 
Um, four, I've got Eleanor Parker. This is a strong. This is a strong set of nominees. I think. Um, three, I've got Catherine Hepburn, and two, I have Anna Magnani. And I, I do Ooh. love the performance, but I, I felt, I felt Hayward really brought it. Number one, I have Susan Hayward. I think, I just in terms of being a performance that's physical and that. Um, really gets across what the film is trying to say. I think it's maybe the most successful of this bunch, but it's very, very close. I texted you the other day and I said, you know, I'm t- I'm torn here um, between the top two, but it's... Um, I'm, yeah. I'm going to go for Hayward because then she wouldn't have got her Oscar in 1958 <laughs> that she didn't deserve. <laughs> but, you know. Fair point. And like I mentioned earlier, Magnani didn't. She didn't care. Um, <laughs> but I, 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 I mean, agreed 100% on your assessment of Hayward. She definitely brought everything to that role, and it shows in the movie. So, yeah. Um, so, uh, wider observations on 1955? Do we want to talk about James Dean? Particularly his death um, Yeah. Mm-hmm. in 55. But I think it kind of did dominate... Um, the narrative of the film here um, to an extent where maybe if you didn't have a film as beloved as Marty, maybe he would have even won James Dean. Um, I could say that, yeah. I mean, he was definitely writing um, that kind of sympathy and popularity in the wake of his death and also, of course, leaving three movies behind um, mm. All of which, I mean, this Rebel Without a Cause and then Giant came out the following year, um, which I hate, but, you know, he's good in it. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, Marty definitely was the right choice for a lot of the categories that it won. Um, I love Marty. You know, I wish we could. It's great. I wish Betsy Blair had snuck into the lead actress category so we could talk about it, but, yeah. Yeah. but I, no, I agree. James Dean was the big story of 55 for sure. I mean, just mentioning this was the last year that foreign language film was a honorary category. Um, and uh, Samurai, the legend of Musashi won for Japan. And then Japan would not win competitively until uh, just about 10 years ago. So had a long, a long drought when it became competitive, but great movie. Uh, we have we have a website. Um, it's it's uh, categoricallyoscars dot com. We're on Twitter at categoricallyo. Leave us a review if you like the podcasts on whichever app you're using. Yes, and next week we welcome another guest, a long a long time follower and um, fan of the show. Zeta Short is going to come on to talk about Yay. to talk about the surviving nominees for Best Writing 1928-29, going back into the 20s for the first time to the second Academy Awards. And deep breath, the nominees were The Cop in Old Arizona, The Last of Mrs. Cheney, The Leatherneck, Our Dancing Daughters, Sal of Singapore, Skyscraper, The Valiant, A Woman of Affairs, Wonder of Women, and the winner, The Patriot. And which of those survived for us to talk about, you will find out on the next episode. 
Yeah, and I will mention on Twitter which films we're going to be talking about as well. So if anyone wants to watch along with us, we've got Garbo, we've got Crawford, we've got Norma Shearer involved in this. So plenty of interest in these movies um, and they're available online um, for anyone that wants to watch. And we hope that Zeta is going to come on after the, the Jennifer Jones mauling. <laughs> we gave <laughs> Jennifer Jones super fan uh, Zeta, but I, I think maybe hopefully she will even admit that this is not one of Jones' best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>